The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Well, it's a great pleasure to introduce Jeff Scargill from NASA Ames. Um, Jeff is actually a Caltech product. Welcome back. Um, and he's a world-renowned authority on the analysis of astrophysical time series. His scientific interests are many, mostly in the analysis of high-energy astrophysics data. Um, and he's highly accomplished in, in the algorithms arena, even has algorithms named after him. Right? Um, Jeff is also a Keck Institute Distinguished Visiting Scholar for this workshop. And the official wording on that is, the Keck Institute Distinguished Visiting Scholars will play a key role there <laughs> in the activities of the Institute. And so we hope to see Jeff a lot more for the next several months. Um, and now he will deliver his keynote talk. Thank you very much, George, and the rest of the committee. I've uh, indeed a great honor to be to come back to uh, to Caltech. And in fact, you'll see um, um, sort of a circle of of things that kind of amaze me that my um, my work here as a graduate student has kind of come back to haunt me in terms of the the Crab Nebula, uh, which you heard about a little bit already. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to, um, to cover a few topics in the um, general area of time series analysis. And I'm going to start with a kind of abstract representation of what I mean by time series, which may seem kind of silly. But the, the goal is to try to unify d uh, different data modes and to, to generate algorithms and software that can take um, input data kind of in a generic form and, and do all kinds of things with it. I'll talk a little bit about time series models and try to emphasize time domain analysis, because I think that ties in most, uh, most directly with the, the workshop. And if time allows, I'll get into some, some new t uh, frequency domain and time scale and time uh, frequency uh, distributions, which I think are, are going to be very useful in the future. So here's a, a picture of something I call a data cell. And it's kind of what you're maybe do anyway, but it's a bit abstract. That is, it represents a measurement. And it includes any information that's relevant to whatever algorithm you're going to use on the, on the data. Maybe some uh, intensity as a function of time. You need to know what time the measurement was made at. Maybe you need the energy of a photon. But the point of the abstraction is that it can represent any kind of measurement, for example, in high energy astronomy, often what you have is a, a sequence of photon detection times. And so the raw data is a time of detection. In, other, in radio astronomy, you measure a, a, a flux as a function at a given time. Um, sometimes in, in high energy, you have something called a time to spill data mode, which is how long it takes some buffer to fill up on the spacecraft. But the, the point is that some of the algorithms that I'm going to talk about later can accept data in any, any of those forms, and in fact, any mixture of those forms. You could have different um, data cells, as long as they have the right information in them, mix and match and dump them into an algorithm, and everything works out fine. A time series, then, is nothing but a sequence of these data cells ordered in time. Um, and, and that's really all there is to it. That's the, uh, the input for some analysis technique. And let me give an example of the photon detection time that I talked about. What the cell for a sequence of photons, these red dots represent successive uh, photon times in a, 
high energy detector, what you can do is construct a cell uh, that visually and ge geometrically is a rectangle uh, extending from the, the midpoint between the, the photon you're interested in and the previous one and the midpoint of the successive one. It's kind of a one-dimensional Voronoi tessellation, if you will, and have the height of that cell be uh, one divided by this time interval. And in fact, it turns out you can then calculate things like autocorrelation and cross-correlation functions by treating this, the height of this rectangle, as the, the measured variable. And you can even adjust for exposure and um, by, by shrinking the cell according to the value of, of the relative exposure. And it turns out that gaps are very easy to treat with this point of view. OK, let's move on to, to models of time series, because that's where the, the physics comes in. Um, I still remember that uh, maybe it wasn't one day, but when I was a graduate student here, wondering why it is that the only thing astronomers could do with time series data was take a Fourier transform and make a power spectrum out of it. They, there was nothing beyond that, in, in a sense, even though a lot of um, statistical methods and a lot of time series methods were developed initially in astronomy um, by Gauss and Schuster and early people, but a lot of um, astronomers didn't know anything about it. So I went across to Millikan Library and remember discovering uh, this theorem in a, um, books on economics. Um, it's called the Wold decomposition, decomposition Theorem. Um, here's a picture of the inventor of it, an econometrician. And it, it's a very interesting theorem that has a lot of um, ramifications. I could, I could spend all morning talking about it. But for astronomy, what it really is is a, a representation proof that any stationary process can be represented in this very simple way as the sum of two parts, one of which is completely deterministic and, and in the blue part, and the red part is completely random. And in turn, the, the random part has a very special form, something called a moving average, uh, not to be confused with a running mean type of moving average, but it's a, a general representation of random processes where, in, in, in terms of like an electrical engineering analog, it's white noise, R of T, is, it's a white noise process run through a filter. And astrophysically, that filter represents the shape of some flare process or some outburst in the, in the random uh, variability of the source. And um, one of the amazing things about this, um, this theorem is, First of all, how general it is. Any stationary process has this representation. But the representation is very special. In addition to being of this form, this pulse shape or flare shape has a, very, a bunch of properties which are quite restrictive. And uh, one of the interesting things is to understand how it is that a physical process that, for example, doesn't have a constant flare shape, how, how is that possibly represented mathematically as a process that does have a constant flare shape. I, I still haven't quite understood that, but um, anyway, um, I, I think this should be regarded as a very um, important, as I say, existence proof for astrophysical models. What about this stationarity um, condition? That, that word gets tossed around quite a bit. In a way, it's a very difficult thing to deal with in practice, because the, the formal definitions that you see in the textbooks 
uh, only apply if you have an infinite amount of data, so to speak. They're, they're limiting definition. So um, a lot of thought has been put into this by um, statisticians and mathematicians, Flandrin and um, Dave Donahoe at Stanford and others have, have developed notions um, implementing the concept that stationarity is, is kind of really a local, the only thing you can really deal with in practice is a, a local concept. And it, anybody who's interested in this, I, I think this, this paper by um, uh, pa Patrick Flandrin and other co-authors has a very nice approach. And um, I, I like their um, discussion of this in a two-dimensional context. This, the set of pictures um, of, of the same location on the Earth at different scales kind of shows uh, visually the, the kind of concept. Um, the idea is here you start off with, with a, you're very high up and you see a lot of inhomogeneities. This is not a stationary process statistically. There are, there are broad regions where there's water, I guess, and, and land, and you wouldn't call this a sort of a uniform thing. But on a different scale, as you move in, you see a fairly uniform or stationary uh, spatial distribution because you're looking at, at sort of a, a, a city that's laid out in some reasonable way. But if you zoom in again, you see a lot of substructure. And uh, zoom in again, and, you, and sort of cheating, you pick an area that looks kind of smooth. So it, it's clear that, that not only is stationarity a, um, a local property, but it depends a lot on the scale, and you can go back and forth from a stationary to a non-stationary process. And of course, the same concepts apply in one-dimensional uh, uh, time, but I, I think it's nice to see this in a more graphical way. Um, and here's kind of a, a um, in a way, it's sort of a sobering uh, picture for astronomers because um, the, you're, what's going on when you observe variable sources is, is not simple. Um, there are several random processes going on that, that you have to deal with. One is that the luminosity of the original source may be random or deterministic. It may be fluctuating as variable sources. But in addition, there's a completely separate random process that is the emission of photons. Um, you can sort of think of this as almost a quantum mechanical random emission process. And then things are not necessarily smooth uh, along the way to the Earth. There's, there's random effects that can affect the signal depending on the wavelength as it comes to the Earth. And then there's another random uh, process going on that is the photon detection. You can think of the, um, the radiant flux at the detector as a probability and uh, you're sampling from that in kind of a Poisson process way. And so this is a bit complicated, but I, I stress this because in the literature you'll see a lot of confusion between these processes and statements made that correlation here implies that you cannot do certain things here because the, the data are not uncorrelated. And um, that's, not, that's not true at all of this photon detection process. You can, this is completely Un, an un, uncorrelated or independent process, even if there is strong correlations here. Okay, let's now focus, like I said, on the, on the closest thing to um, what we're going to be talking about in the workshop the rest of the week, I, I believe, is the time domain. And there's a, um, an algorithm that, that I've developed for um, time domain modeling of, um, of 
uh, time series um, in, in, in general in astronomy that is kind of a, a, the, the simplest possible model you could make of a variable source is uh, a piecewise constant or, st or step function model, so to speak, of a time series. And this is um, now being used quite a bit in, in various, in, uh, especially high energy sources, or sorry, high energy missions. Um, under the name of Bayesian blocks, and I'm a little bit embarrassed that I now think it probably is misnamed and should be called uh, maximum likelihood blocks because the, um, the fitness function that turns out to be more practical for applying the method is more like a maximum likelihood thing <laughs> than a Bayesian posterior. But anyway, it's a, it's a segmentation approach, and it's, um, it, like I say, it's basically a step function representation of the time series. It's non-parametric in the the usual sort of backward sense, namely, has many parameters. That is, it's not fitting a parametric model to the data, but it has a lot, a lot of um, generic parameters that allow you to fit a signal of, of any shape. And there are few assumptions on it. The only thing you need to uh, assume, so to speak, are, are sort of generic priors, uh, prior distributions on the amplitudes of the blocks or, or um, elements of the signal and the number, a prior, you need a prior on the number of blocks. But the key thing is that it's, it does not impose any um, resolution or um, limitation on the resolution of the analysis method at all. For example, it's not like uh, taking photon event data and putting it in bins and looking at a, a histogram, so to speak, uh, where you have to pick the bins. In addition, it, the algorithm is, um, I can say it's very clever because I, I didn't actually develop the mathematics behind it myself. I was working with Brad Jackson at the mathematician at San Jose State. It's a, it's a very clever algorithm and it even has a, a very simple mode that you can switch on where it, it finds the first significant, in, in sort of a time-ordered way, it finds the first significant time that a signal rises above a statistical background. But it's it's more often used for retrospective analysis of, of event data or, or other kinds of data. And even though the, re the representation is discontinuous, it's a, like I say, a step function, and, and in some sense it's not a very pretty way to represent a time series. It's very convenient for further analysis. If you want to calculate something like a rise time of a, of a flare or, or the duration of a gamma ray burst or something, the step function representation is very convenient for, for calculating things like that. On the other hand, it's not good, it's not meant to detect um, global st structure in the time series like periodicities or quasi-periodicities. It, it's meant to exhibit local structure in, in time. And it's currently an n-squared algorithm, but it can uh, probably be sped up. Well, enough about exactly um, how great it is, so to speak, but um, it's based on this concept of taking a, a, a sequence of these data cells and breaking them into blocks and, and, and trying to fit a, a constant model to each of the blocks, so to speak. And here's just a graphical way that the, um, the sequence of cells are divided into blocks. And here, I probably shouldn't show this because it makes the algorithm seem so simple. It's a few lines of MATLAB code, but it, it's really leveraging a very um, interesting approach um, to this kind of analysis called dynamic programming. The, the idea behind this actually goes back to um, 
to work by Richard Bellman in the in the 1950s. It's a it's an algorithm that act, that um, uh, works iteratively. It starts with the first uh, data point and then adds one data point at each time. That's why it's n squared, but that's also why this um, this real-time trigger mode can work. You can uh, kind of stop the first time you detect a, a change point. Uh, change point is just the technical term for the time at which one block ends and the next block begins. Well, it's probably easier to see a, what's going on in terms of a picture. This is some, uh, some data, I think, from a, um, a gamma ray burst. I, I forget exactly where I got this. But, and so the, the yellow um, histogram is just a, a, a binned histogram of the uh, times of the individual uh, events. The, the raw data, of course, are not binned in this way. The raw data are just a sequence of times. But in order to see what's going on at all, you kind of have to do some, some binning. The, the blue um, uh, plot is the Bayesian block, or in this case, a maximum likelihood block representation of the raw data. Um, that you can see, of course, is kind of like binning the data with variable bin sizes, where the, not only the sizes of the bins are determined by the data, but their, um, their locations are determined by the data. So again, you haven't imposed any, um, anything on the resolution. Like here's a very sharp um, rise, a, a pulse in the gamma ray burst, that if you had a broader bin, for example, the yellow binning doesn't particularly show that, that event. So that, it's a very simple idea. As, as I say, it's the, I think it's the simplest conceivable model of a variable source that, that isn't completely trivial. And here's, here's the um, kind of a, an amazing um, recent discovery. This is some data from the Fermi Gamma Ray Telescope of the Crab Nebula, the flux from the Crab Nebula, which for many years has been used as a um, standard candle because it was known that it couldn't vary. Well, actually, my, my, uh, my thesis back here many, many years ago at, at Caltech was called Activity in the Crab Nebula. And it, it was clear there was stuff going on from optical observations of the crab. And the synchrotron plasma is not a, a quiet and serene thing. It's being stirred up by the pulsar. And, in a way, it's not too surprising that there is a variability. But these, these sharp flares, these kind of dramatic increases in the flux, the gamma ray flux, um, this is, by the way, it's a very broad band extending up to uh, uh, over a G, GeV um, in energy. But most of the, the flux is, is in the uh, hundreds of MeV uh, range. So anyway, here's a Bayesian block representation of this, this same data, the raw data that went into um, generating this, this curve. And you see what it says is that there's, uh, most of the time it's fairly constant, but in fact there are flares that you, you can see with your eye. You can see these events here. But what this analysis suggests is, and by the way, this lower panel is just a blow up of this interesting region of the, the bright flare showing Again, there's, there's no predefined uh, time resolution, so there's three pulses within this flare that are distinct and separated. And, and in, independent um, uh, work by other people confirm that, that viewpoint, that, that that's real. Uh, but the suggestion is that, in a, that these flares are kind of part of a continuing random variability 
and they're sort of just the, t the uh, high end of a um, distribution function for uh, amplitudes of uh, flaring events. And so, in a sense, the, these events shouldn't be called individual flares. It's a continuing random uh, kind of bubbling activity. And by the way, the, um, the, the number of possible ways of segmenting this kind of data is, is um, essentially 2 to the n, where n is the number of data points. Of course, that's a huge number. Uh, it's an exponential number. And, the, and for this particular data, the number of possible segmentations of 15,000 some uh, photons is 10 to the 468. This algorithm actually finds, it doesn't explicitly search that entire space, obviously, but it does, uh, it's guaranteed to find the, the global optimum over that space because of this, this trick of um, uh, dynamic programming. And it, it, it really works very, very well in practice. Um, there is the, the, the kind of main limitation is there is one free parameter. I think any algorithm like this always has some kind of parameter to kind of um, adjust or, or modify some, some notion of smoothness. Uh, in this case, it's a, a pri I mentioned a prior on the number of blocks or the number of change points. It's sort of, it's not really a smoothing parameter because you, you never smooth out, you never lose these sharp edges. You, you never uh, get rid of signals because of uh, rounding edges or, or smoothing out the data. But by uh, modulating this, this prior probability of the number of change points, you can uh, find that there are fewer uh, details shown in the representation. So in effect, it is a, a kind of uh, quasi-smoothing parameter. And uh, recently, um, some colleagues working with me on this at, at uh, Slack and, and other places, we've, we've worked out some ways of figuring out what the, the best value for that, that prior parameter is. And so it, it's become less of a, um, of a worry what the choice of that, that parameter is. And I, I think um, here's just to, to show you um, the algorithm being used in a, a lot of different Fermi data. and. Um, this shows an, another mode, another data mode, where the raw, um, this is kind of a mixture. This is a mixture of event data. And then some, um, the, the red points with error bars are, are this other data mode, where you have a measurement and some uh, uncertainty estimate assumed to be normal, showing that you can mix those together. And you can see that the gaps are, this is a, an actual gap in the data, and often, the a one block ends at the before the gap, and then the next block uh, begins after the gap. But it's possible for a block to span a gap because the rate before and after that interruption are statistically the same, and you get a better get a better model if you assume that that's a single uh, event rate going across that whole interval. Of course, the algorithm isn't saying anything about what's ha really happening in the gap. It's just saying that it, um, it's sort of a consistency with the data, um, but in, in other cases, uh, but in, in any case, you're, you're never magically interpolating into the gap. That's, that should be obvious. And here's some, uh, some radio data. This is actually from the um, an Owens Valley um, um, survey that some people here at Caltech are, are part of. Um, showing this, this mode where the, you don't have individual photon events, but you have normally distributed 
um, data with a, with a lot of, um, uh, so in some cases, large intervals between the, the points. Okay, this is a bit of a tangent, but if you think about it, for the event mode, what I've just been talking about as a time series analysis method is nothing other than a histogram, a histogram of the arrival times. And here's some data. It happens to be the fluxes of the Crab, of the crab Nebula from the previous plot, but you can think of them as, as any kind of a data source. And here, the, it's the same data with histograms, ordinary histograms, calculated with different bin sizes. And I've just indicated the number of bins, 16, 32, 64, and 128, showing that, of, of course, what you see depends a lot on your choice of the sizes of the bins and, and what's the right thing. Is this showing noise? Uh, and this is a better representation of the real distribution. Is this the best one because it's smoothness? Um, and, and that's always a, um, a problem. So I, I, I have a, an algorithm which is essentially a general purpose histogrammer that doesn't make any assumption about the sizes of the bins or, or even their locations and doesn't even make them be equal. The, the bins uh, are determined by the data. And here's what happened when I, I ran it on this data. Um, here's the histogram I got, a fairly smooth one, but there was one bin that was really high. And at first, I, I have to admit, I thought, well, some, something's gone wrong with the algorithm. That looks strange. Uh, but what you see, um, the, the blue histogram, is a, where I cranked up the number of bins. And, you, and sure enough, there is a, a um, if you make the binning fine enough, you would have discovered this, this event. And here's a blow up at the center. This, this blue bin is from an ordinary, evenly spaced histogram. But I think you w wouldn't have necessarily um, seen that if you had just looked at this and said, well, I've kind of covered the waterfront um, and there's nothing, uh, nothing really going on at, at very uh, fine resolution, so to speak. Uh, but in fact, it, this is a real, and it turns out, it's, unfortunately, it's not a um, signature of something going on in the Crab Nebula. It happens that this is preliminary data with a the Fermi data analysis is a bit complicated, and there's a, an iterative fitting thing with a starting value. And it happened that this pileup is kind of an artifact of a starting value that's at the, um, the location of this black um, line, so that in a way, this is an artifact, but it's something that I uncovered without knowing about it, just by trusting that Bayesian blocks was doing the right thing. And by the way, there, in addition to have ordinary histograms being uh, dependent on how big you make the bins, it also depends on where the bin edges are located. And this um, the cyan curve it represents the peak of an ordinary evenly spaced histogram with the same spacing as shown in, in dark blue, but with simply sh uh, shifting the location of the bin edges by uh, from beginning to end, this is one full bin width. And so you see that the actual peak you would get depends on where you pick the edges, not in addition to how big you make the bins. So what I'm, I'm trying to sell, I'm trying to encourage everybody to, to give up ordinary evenly spaced binning that um, you use and, and do this, this very simple thing. And computationally, it, it's a, obviously a little bit more complicated than just putting uh, points in bins. But it's not that, um, not that expensive computationally for, um, for most, uh, most data sets. 
Okay, and still staying in the time domain, um, this is a f this algorithm uh, is from a fairly old paper now by Edelson and Krolik. It's um, this is the title of the uh, sorry this is the title of the paper. It's a fairly well-known algorithm in in astronomy, um, but I recently discovered how how really great it is and how how generally useful it is. In particular. It's easy to code it up for the, the very general data mode that I talked about, this very abstract thing at the beginning where I talked about data cells that could be two, two minutes, could be anything. And um, here's a cartoon of how it works, and I, I don't have time to go into details, but it's a very s simple idea. General, here's the ordinary cross auto or cross-correlation function where you take points separated by a given lag. The, the generalization is instead of you kind of collect together all points that happen to lie within some uh, lag interval instead of at a precisely defined lag. Here's an example of an autocorrelation um, from some maxi data of Japanese um, X-ray uh, experiment on the space station. Um, and again, I don't have time to go into details, but you can get error estimates and so on from, uh, from data. Here, here's some... Um, X-ray data from um, ASCA uh, with incredible sampling in a sense. There's, there's a whole kinds of gaps due to the orbital motion of the spacecraft and interruptions. And in general, you think you'd really have a hard time getting a, a, um, a, an autocorrelation function. But here I represent each photon with one, with one of those shells. The, the red dots are those 1 over delta T cells. Uh, plug that into the, uh, and there's a blow up showing you how big the, the gaps are and so on. Anyway, you get a fairly clean autocorrelation function just by, um, sorry, does that mean I'm over time by, okay, sorry. Okay, well, and it, just as an aside, um, this whole scheme works in higher dimensions, so you have to uh, generate a, a fitness function that's appropriate to higher dimensions, but this, using Voronoi cells, and here's an example of this is a not a very good representation of a 3D Bayesian block analysis of the structure in the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, getting kind of a density estimate of the distribution of galaxies um, in the universe. So I, I have a, a few more things, but I, um, th I think this is a good time to stop. Thanks very much. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.